Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and this is Matthew Stockton. No, it's Jason Statham. You're not Jason Statham. Yes, I am. Are you the transporter? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that yeah, is. Yeah, it was one of his movies. Oh, is it? Uh, why are you calling yourself Jason Statham today? Because you've shaved your head? Because nobody can see me. They don't know I'm not Jason Statham. Well, you don't talk like Jason Statham because he's a little cockney. Well... That's because I'm in Canada, so I, oh, okay. I, I'm such a good actor. I can put on a gay Canadian accent <laughs> <laughs> with a lisp. With... Oh, no. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In January of 1922, the first of a series of fires broke out on a farm in the small rural community of Caledonia Mills in Antigonish County, Nova Scotia. The members of the family who lived at the farm were Alexander MacDonald, 70, his wife, 69-year-old Janet, and their 15-year-old adopted daughter, Mary Ellen. They claimed the unexplained blazes, 30 in all had begun in rapid succession in places not close to either wood stove. The fires and other terrifying occurrences that drove them out of their home, they believed, were caused by a malicious poltergeist bent on their destruction and focused around young Mary Ellen. 
News of the events brought renowned international investigators of things paranormal to the farm, even catching the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes detective stories. This is Dark Poutine episode 247, The Caledonia Mills Poltergeist. When was the last time you can recall reading about a ghost story, other than at Halloween, treated seriously in a respected newspaper like the New York Times? I'll wait. No, I won't. Uh, we'd be waiting a long time. Perhaps out of fears of ridicule and loss of integrity, modern journalists in more prominent publications avoid stories of the unexplained like a highly infectious plague. Ironically, the plague of COVID-19 is all that we've been talking about, especially over the past few years. But I digress. Who doesn't love a good ghost story? I certainly do. The history of my home province of Nova Scotia is fat with tales of the supernatural. And this is just one of many. Many elements of the Caledonia Mills story closely match those of the Great Amherst Mystery, another Nova Scotia tale that occurred in 1878. In episode 66 of Dark Poutine, we learned of the story of Esther Cox, an extraordinary 18-year-old at the center of horrific psychic attacks which some people attributed to poltergeist. Esther's story began with the feeling of something under the bed, then odd noises, and later Esther suffered an unexplained illness. The events continued for months, eventually leading to items flying around the home and mysterious fires being set out of nowhere. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check it out. Our guest for that show was our first meeting with Morgan Knudsen, with whom I now do the podcast, Supernatural Circumstances. While not as famous as Esther Cox's, this story has endured and is often revisited. To get to Caledonia Mills in Antigonish County, Nova Scotia, you're looking at a 22-minute drive from the closest town, Antigonish. The most direct route is southeast along Highway 4, the Sunrise Trail, which then turns slightly south and becomes Highway 316, the old Antigonish Guysboro Road. The McDonald Farm is long gone. Only a few farms remain. The area is still so out of the way that the Google Maps car hasn't yet found its way along the route, so looking on Street View to get an idea of the landscape was a bust. When I was a youngster, we would say a region like that was out in the boonies. However, I'm told that if you ask the right person, you might find a guide who will lead you to where all this paranormal activity is alleged to have happened. Although the road is paved today, it was most likely a dirt road in 1922 and more densely wooded, making it feel even more remote. Most likely, the trek into town of Antigonish would be a day-long affair, perhaps even involving an overnight stay as a getaway from the physical demands of life on the farm. The province's capital, Halifax, almost two and a half hours away by car today, was accessible via passenger train from the Antigonish train station. It must have seemed like a world away to the likes of the McDonald family. Most likely, for specific provisions, local families would travel to the general store in the village of St. Andrews, a more manageable 12 kilometers away. Although Caledonia Mills was tiny, it had its own post office and a small schoolhouse for the local children. There was a grist mill and a sawmill. The locals survived and made money by farming and logging their properties, working at various lumber camps or in the depths of nearby coal mines. Like many others in rural Nova Scotia, the McDonald family had no amenities at the time. Water came from a dug well, a telephone was decades away, and there was no electricity. The house was tiny, just 27 feet long and 14 feet wide. The family entertained their infrequent guests in a small front room, also called the parlor. 
They were warmed by a small wood stove central in the home's dining room, which also served as a third bedroom. Another tiny bedroom was directly off the dining room. Their rudimentary kitchen with its sizable wood-fueled cooking stove took up nearly half of the home. That is tiny. Yeah. I mean, that's smaller, even smaller than a Vancouver condo. Oh my gosh. Which is small. Yeah, some of those condos are pretty tiny. They make them so small. Little postage stamp. You got to go outside to change your mind. Yeah. From Monica Graham's book, Fire Spook, quote, Wallpaper covered the dining room walls in the parlor ceiling, while the parlor walls and dining room ceiling were brown painted wood. Roll-up blinds covered the downstairs windows and upholstered furniture beckoned the weary. Above the kitchen was a loft, while the second floor, over the main part of the house, served as a large bedroom accessed by a stairway from the front parlor. A ladder led up to the kitchen loft, which had no opening, into the second floor bedroom. End quote. An outhouse stood behind the house where the family would attend to biological necessities. However, if it was too cold at night, the bedpans found under each small bed in the home were utilized to take care of private matters and then emptied in the morning. The family's barn just north of the main house was home to the family's livestock, a few head of cattle, horses, a few sheep, and a small chicken coop. A few other sheds dotted the property holding the farm equipment, like plows pulled by their working animals, and another carrying the precious firewood that warmed their bones in the winter and cooked their food all year. Janet Cameron married Alexander MacDonald in 1873. Janet and Alex both were born and grew up close to the property they'd eventually inhabit. Janet was one of 11 children. She only ever had one of her own, their daughter Mary, born soon after the couple were married. Like many others of Celtic heritage in the region, the family spoke fluent Gaelic as well as English. Janet MacDonald was a strong and caring woman. After Janet's father John Cameron died in 1885, over the next 14 years her mother Mary began to slide steadily downhill, eventually developing advanced dementia. Mrs. Cameron was placed in a care home by Janet's siblings who were unable or unwilling to deal with her. Janet couldn't bear to see her mother in a place like that, so in 1899, she took in the older woman to care for her. Dealing with old Mrs. Cameron was far more demanding than Janet had anticipated. As with many people suffering from dementia, her short-term memory was non-existent. The poor older woman could not recall the names of the people caring for her, even her daughter Janet. Sometimes she said cruel and terrible things. She called out constantly for her husband, having to be told continually that he'd passed away some time ago. Mrs. Cameron's wandering was the most significant concern for the McDonald's. Day and night she'd meander, sometimes out into the weather without proper clothing. For Mrs. Cameron's safety, Janet and Alex began locking her into the small bedroom off the dining room. But somehow Mrs. Cameron would find her way out to wander and yell in the middle of the night, scaring the wits out of Alex and Janet. According to Monica Graham's book, Fire Spook, quote, Janet solved this problem by nailing the door shut, which confined the poor woman to ransacking the bedroom and wailing at night. Within months, Janet started tying her mother onto the bed, end quote. Janet was run ragged thanks to her farm-related chores and caring for her invalid mother 24 hours a day without respite. None of Janet's siblings wanted anything to do with the old lady, whom they felt was a burden and nothing more. Do you know how hard it would have been to look after someone with 
with Alzheimer's back then. It would have been horrendous. Middle of nowhere, no yep. medication, mm -hmm. no real understanding of the disease at the time, and no support, mm -hmm. right? And, and people struggle with it now. It's hard. Yeah. But to do this in a farmhouse in the 1920s would have been near impossible. Yeah, totally. Well, it wasn't the 20s then. It was actually 1900. It was not even the 20s. It was, it was not even the 20s yet. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and I know that this idea of tying her mother onto the bed and, you know, nailing the door shut is shocking. And I'm sure some people were like, oh my God, that's horrible. It was 1900. Yeah, it was 1900. And this woman didn't know what else to do. No. She wanted, she, obviously she didn't want her mom wandering out into the snow. Yeah. You know, if she's escaping all the time and she, it's 1900, she doesn't know what to do. It's like, yeah, you know what? I probably would have nailed the door shut to keep her safe. Right. Yeah, exactly. Despite her struggles, Janet still enjoyed entertaining the neighbors. She and Alex regularly welcomed them in to eat her renowned cooking and to play cards with them. The first unexplained events occurred in the cozy little farmhouse during one of these card games. On April 27, 1900, poor old Mrs. Cameron was particularly agitated. She was screaming, ranting, and crashing around in her little room. Janet went in to see if she could settle her mother but was unsuccessful. The more Janet pleaded and cajoled, trying to make her mother more comfortable, the more the older woman flailed and screamed. Finally, after years of trying to be kind, Janet's frayed nerves got the better of her, and she snapped. Witnesses heard Janet McDonald curse her mother. According to Monica Graham's book, Janet yelled, I hope the devil in hell comes and takes you before morning, end quote. At that moment, the people present saw a large, mangy black dog with glowing red eyes walk through the dining room and through the door to the room where Janet was struggling to calm Mrs. Cameron. The dog did not belong to the McDonald's, nor was it familiar to any guests. Janet emerged from the room, and Alex and the others, who'd been playing cards, asked if she'd seen the dog. Janet said she had not. She went back into the room to look for the strange animal, but she couldn't see any canine. Alex checked the room as well, and he could find no dog either. They searched the house for the dog, but couldn't find any sign of it. The guests soon took their leave, heading home for the night. All of them were shaken by the apparition of a black dog. To you and I, the sight of a black dog may not be significant, but to some people in rural Nova Scotia at the turn of the 20th century, it held deep and dark meaning. They believed it could have been a black shuck, a mythological creature long inhabiting the folklore of the peoples of East Anglia. Black dogs were seen as an omen of death, a psychopomp sent from the depths of hell to remove your soul from its earthly vessel and drag it back to the underworld. Some say that if you hear this dog's piercing and terrifying howl, you should keep your eyes closed so as not to be marked for death. Mrs. Cameron was much quieter after the guests departed and remained so all night, giving Alex and Janet the best night's sleep they'd had in ages. When Janet went to rouse Mrs. Cameron for breakfast the following day, Janet found the older woman had died in her sleep. Janet was mortified. Had her curse come true, or was it just a coincidence? Wouldn't you feel so bad? Yeah. Especially, you know, you lose your shit one night. Yeah. Just because you're stressed and then she's dead the next day. Mm-hmm. Also, what is a psychopomp? The visage of death would be a psychopomp. It's essentially something that helps you transition between this world and the next. It's a spiritual, supernatural entity that helps you to transition to death. Psychopomp in circumstance. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Neighbors whispered about Janet's curse, the black dog, and the odd timing of Mrs. Cameron's death soon after. Some thought that Janet had followed through on her curse and dispatched her mother that night, frustrated and at the end of a rope, unwilling to take care of poor Mrs. Cameron anymore. A dark pall settled over the farm after Mrs. Cameron passed away. Janet didn't want to have guests anymore, as a deep melancholy set in as she grieved for her mother. She was never again the same cheerful person. Sometime in November of 1903, Andrew, Alex's brother, arrived back in Nova Scotia after earning a mitt full of cash working in the United States. He came to visit, bringing his party attitude into the now quiet little farmhouse. Andrew just barged in, sat at the table, and began drinking from a bottle he'd brought. He boasted and bragged. His jokes were rude, too much for young Mary's ears, but as the drink took him, he didn't seem to notice how offended Janet had become. Exactly how much is a mitful of cash? It's the sort of the same as a bucketful. Is that? Yeah. Is that? Or unit, a shitload? Is that unit of measure metric or imperial? I think it would be imperial because it came from the United States. Okay, and I can remember keeping my lunch money, my milk money, actually, and my mitt on the way to school. Your milk I money. I remember milk. Remember milk yeah, money? Yeah, school milk. Yeah. And I can remember playing with the coins inside. So, like, so did he, it was probably around 50 cents, maybe less. So did he have more than 50 cents? Did he have more than 50? Oh, I don't know if he okay. had more than 50. He probably had more than 50 cents. Okay. He probably had some folding money. Okay. I used to put my money in my mitt as well. Did you? Yes. Walk to school? Yeah, and I used to jingle it. Yeah, jingle it and play with it yeah, on the inside. totally I did. <laughs> oh, Canadian childhood. Mm-hmm. Andrew's energy was too much for Janet to bear, and she rose, screaming at him to leave. Janet said she didn't care how cold it was outside. She said Andrew was not welcome in her home now or ever again. Andrew begrudgingly grabbed his things and stormed out of the farmhouse. Once outside, he turned and screamed back at the house in Gaelic. The curse, roughly translated to English, was, you'll be driven out on the dung heap on a far worse night than this night. Things didn't go well for Andrew after that, though. His life took a severe turn in the wrong direction, and within a few years he was broke and confined to a local poorhouse. He died there penniless in 1910. It appeared that Andrew's curse had boomeranged back onto him. We'll take a break here, and when we come back, we'll learn about other odd occurrences around the McDonald farm and the events that made the place infamous in 1922. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew 
thoughts so far? I'm thinking that, you know, the problem, a lot of world problems right now, right? Right. But in a lot of ways, we are the luckiest and most pampered people to ever live in history. It's true. Like, think of all the conveniences we had, like central heating, grocery stores, food from afar all winter long. Yep. And hear, hearing how people lived like this in Canada in the early days always fascinates me. Can you imagine having to poop in a bedpan in the middle of the night if you really have to go and you don't ha want to have to get up, put all your clothes on and go out to the... Here's something for you. My mom, yep. until the year before she got married, the old farmhouse, they didn't have indoor plumbing. Yeah. They used that house and when they had needed water. Yep. She had the old pump outside. Yep. Yeah, so it wasn't even that long ago. No, um, this will tell you how old I am. My parents bought a, a cottage in Blue Rocks at which we had an outhouse. Okay. So, so I have I have lived in a place where there is no place to go poo inside. In our cottage, we used to bathe in Lake Huron. Yep. Um, what was it? Dove soap, I think, floated. So we always. Ivory, ivory. Ivory. Yeah. So we always bought the ivory soap. Yeah. So you could like bathe in the lake and not lose the soap. <laughs> oh dear. It was in 1910 that four-year-old Mary Ellen, the girl for whom the poltergeist would later be named, came to live on the McDonald's farm. Mary Ellen's father, John Peter McDonald, a relative of Alex's, had been killed in an accident at the Drummond coal mine near Waterville when Mary Ellen was still an infant. He'd been crushed by a heavy box of coal that had fallen down the mine shaft at the bottom of which John was toiling. John's wife Annie, a good friend of Janet's, was left with four children, Mary Ellen being the youngest and no breadwinner to help support them. Annie didn't know what to do. Her second youngest, Walter, was already in foster care, but she couldn't find a placement for Mary Ellen. Always a nurturer, Janet was instantly smitten with the cute blue-eyed little girl and decided she wanted to care for her. Alex and Janet took the little girl with them, promising Annie to raise Mary Ellen as their own, ensuring she was educated and give her a really good home. It was a good fit for the McDonald's as their biological daughter Mary was 23 and would likely soon marry and move away. Mary Ellen would provide company for the couple in their advancing years and hopefully provide a much-needed injection of youthful energy to the home that had become so dreary. The farm was an alien environment for the little girl who, until then, had lived in Waterville, a bustling town at the time. Back home in Waterville, she'd also had plenty of other kids to play with, including her siblings. At Old MacDonald's farm, sorry, I had to do it once, there were old people, a young woman and cows, chickens, horses, and sheep, but no kids. Not for miles. Even school was a five-kilometer trek from the farm, so Mary Ellen was left mostly on her own. With Little Mary Ellen also came a significant increase in odd and unexplained happenings at the farm. It seemed as though Mary Ellen had either brought something with her, or her presence had excited something that was already there. People who visited the farm soon after the little girl's arrival witnessed beach ball-sized balls of fire floating aimlessly around the property and then disappearing. Strange noises plagued the family, again witnessed by many. While some noises occurred inside the house, witnesses felt they were suffocating. When the panicked people tried to open the door to flee outside into the fresh air, the door refused to open. But when the strange sound ceased, the door opened easily and they could breathe again. 
At all hours, there were screeches, creaks, bangs, and what sounded like a guttural growling and animal-like roars. Farm animals escaped from carefully secured barns and corrals in the middle of the night without explanation. Prized porcelain dinnerware crashed to the floor, cause unseen. Other things around the house vanished, sometimes later discovered half-buried far from the house or high up in trees around the property. One afternoon, Alex returned from St. Andrews with a new harness he'd bought to use with his workhorse. Alex woke the next morning, excited to fit the harness and get to work. He unlocked his barn and entered, but once inside, he noticed the harness was gone. He searched the farm and the rest of his property, but could not find the harness. None of the neighbors had seen it either. He was the only one with the key to the barn, and there was no other way in. How in the world had the harness, which was no small item, gone missing from a locked barn? The harness did turn up years later, after yet another strange set of events. One day, while Alex was near the woods on his property, he heard a cowbell. Thinking it was one of his animals who'd escaped the fence, he followed the sound. Alex wasn't sure how far he'd walk through the woods following the sound that always seemed to be just out of sight before he tired and sat down on a stump to rest. He looked down at his feet, and sticking out of the dirt and leaves was a metal buckle attached to some leather. Alex pulled on the leather, and out of the ground emerged the harness he thought he'd lost forever. The sound of the cowbell stopped. For decades after the strange activities, locals still uncovered things they believed belonged to the McDonald family. They found weird things buried in the ground, in wells, or up in trees. Whatever the energy was that was causing the commotion, it was not always playful or harmless. At one point, a lamb that had been Mary Ellen's pet turned up at the family's door. Its throat had been viciously slashed, and the poor little creature eventually bled out, leaving little Mary Ellen distraught. Even before the fires, the locals thought there was some sinister presence around the McDonald place. Some thought it might be a Bakken, which is a Scottish domestic hobgoblin that is mischievous and belligerent, but also very helpful when the need arises, although this one didn't seem very helpful. It's so funny. A lot of cultures have um, these little creatures around the house, like a mm -hmm. Bakken. In, in Russia, it's called the Dom Domovoy. Okay. And, you know, if, you're, if your watch goes missing... The right. dom, dom you can't find it. Domovoy took it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, it's interesting how they, it was more the, <clears throat> it was the older cultures that sort of had those. Like we don't have those kind of little things that we say today. Not that I'm aware of. I didn't grow up in a house where we had superstitions or things that we blamed on. I think it was a time as well, right? Yeah. And I mean, part of it is fun. It's yeah. not It's not that these people were dumb or crazy. They were just like, oh, my watch has gone missing. It must have been the Domovoy or the Bakken or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I created an ad campaign for a tea in Russia called hmm. Beseda. Okay. And the little character is a little Dombo Domovoy. Okay. And uh, that I think that campaign still runs. That was wow. 29 years ago or something like that. I bought some Russian tea just the other day. I can't remember the name of it. The though. Russians make good tea. Or have you ever had a samovar? No. They're really cool. What is it? That big metal urn thing where to use for tea. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've never I've never even seen one. There had been an 
There had been other bucking encounters in the area and along the road between Antigonish and Guysborough. Author Mary L. Fraser told of one such meeting in her 1930 book, Folklore of Nova Scotia, that of the Beach Hill Bokdan. Beach Hill is just outside of the town of Antigonish. It is said that during pioneer days, it was the scene of many strange and preternatural manifestations and bizarre occurrences, one of which was the disappearance of a peddler who was never found. One winter evening, a couple named Cameron, no relation to Janet, and their daughter were riding home to Antigonish after having been in South River visiting. As the trio approached Beach Hill, they were confronted by a bizarre sight from Marielle Fraser's book, quote, A huge pair of oxen yoked with heaps of something nondescript piled on their backs were headed by a shriveled old man of very small stature with a rope over his shoulders tied to the middle of the yoke. He strained on the rope with all his might as if to pull the oxen along faster, but more extraordinarily still, four ordinary-sized women were following behind, wearing peculiar headgear very high and unusual. Their dresses made a strange rustling noise, which especially frightened the horses. End quote. As the group tried to get control of their spooked horses, the apparitions passed without a word and faded into the distance, disappearing. There were several other encounters in the area. One involved a man dressed in gray walking along the road as seen by a man named Donald, who was also on foot. Donald wanted to catch up to the man to have company as he walked. Try as he might, Donald could not catch the man. He always seemed to be moving faster. So Donald decided to take a shortcut through the forest at a loop in the road to meet the stranger. Mary L. Fraser wrote, quote, When he again reached the road, he looked back and saw that he had accomplished his purpose. The gray man then took to the woods, with Donald in hot pursuit. As the latter reached the open in the forest through which the gray man had disappeared, he heard moaning. On proceeding further, he saw the man lying under a tree but his face was so horrible that he took to his heels and never stopped until the woods were left far behind, End quote. January 7, 1922, started as usual for Alex McDonald. His first order of business was to get the fire going for the day, warm up the house for his family, and have a hot stove so Janet could make them breakfast. As he walked to the wood stove, Alex noted charred bits of wood on the floor. Looking up, he noticed that one of the beams in the kitchen had deep scorch marks across it, about a meter long. Alex thought perhaps there'd been a chimney fire at night, but the area around the flue was untouched and good as new. What had caused it? Try as he might, he could not find the fire's source. He went to bed that night puzzled. Alex was awakened by Janet, who said she smelled smoke. Alex thought at first that his wife was just paranoid after the previous day's events. Janet insisted Alex get up and check the house. Upon opening the kitchen door, Alex saw a fire burning in the loft above the kitchen. He doused the fire quickly, but as soon as he'd gotten that fire out, another started in a different part of the house. There were five small fires in total before the sun came up. Alex had managed to put them all out before they did too much damage. Alex again checked the house for possible fire hazards and could find no explanation for the blazes. The next day, even though it was freezing outside, the family let the fires die in the afternoon. They didn't want a repeat of the night before and burned the house down while they slept. They retired at around 10 p.m., but only minutes later, Alex smelled smoke. He got up and his nose led him to the kitchen. From Monica Graham's book, Fire Spook. Quote, Flames leapt from an upholstered rocking chair that sat about three meters from the stove. Alex grabbed it, shouldered through the kitchen door, and threw it into a snowbank. 
Upon returning to the kitchen, he saw a couch in flames on the opposite side of the room. He hauled it to the door and shoved it into the snow beside the chair. For the second night, Alex stayed awake until early morning, but no more fires would start that night, nor would they the following Monday or Tuesday. End quote. The next day was the worst. Fires started seemingly spontaneously in the house. As soon as Alex got one out, Janet or Mary Ellen would scream that another fire had started. Alex sent Mary Ellen down the road to get their neighbor, Leo McGilvery, to come over and help. Over the next 24 hours, they successfully fought 38 fires that had started in various parts of the McDonald's farmhouse. They said the flames had singed their hair, but had been oddly cool, quiet, and at times, bright blue in color. McGilvery, who had worked around electricity, said that the fires glowed like a high-tension wire, but a lot brighter. Afraid to return home, the McDonald's went to stay at the McGilvery's place for the next few days. Word of the mysterious fires spread. A newspaper man in Antigonish, Harold H.B. Widden, was the one who broke the story in the Halifax Herald and the Halifax Evening Mail. Widden and a police detective named Peachy Carroll spent two nights in the house. During this, they both experienced several odd events. Widden wrote, quote, I visited the homestead in the capacity of a newspaper correspondent. After spending two days and two nights with Detective Carroll in the McDonald house, I was more mystified than ever. On the second night of our stay, we had a new experience. We heard strange noises, absolutely different from anything I had ever heard before, from the floor over our heads. And shortly afterwards, I distinctly felt a blow on the flat part of my left arm above my elbow. At the time, I was satisfied that it was not my imagination because I had absolute control of myself. This blow was felt distinctly through two shirts, an inside coat, a heavy sweater, a fur-lined overcoat, and a new horse rug, which was covering me. Instantly, I knew that something entirely new and hitherto foreign to me had caused it. Fortunately, my mind functioned quickly, in fact, instantly, and I sat up. Turning to Carol, I asked him if he had hit me. I did this simply to satisfy myself that he had not, because my impression from the very first was that no human hand had caused the blow. He was genuinely surprised. Carol was in exactly the same position that I had seen him a moment before when I felt the blow. In fact, he was in such a position that he could not have touched me or even moved without my knowledge. I turned to Alexander MacDonald, who was on the floor on the other side of me. He was in the same position I had seen him just before and was nearly asleep. He could not have moved or touched me without my knowledge. That is, as in the case of Carol, without my knowing it. End quote. To coin a phrase, the story caught on like wildfire. And soon both the Evening Mail and the Herald were running a contest, asking readers for their theories, printing them, offering a small monetary prize to whoever came up with the best explanation. The advertisement read, What caused mysterious fires in Antigonish Farmer's Home? Intense interest has been created in the fires which a few days ago broke out in the home of Alexander MacDonald, a highly respected farmer who resides at Caledonia Mills, 25 miles from Antigonish. Eyewitnesses have stated that 38 fires broke out in the house in one night with no apparent reason. Many theories have been advanced as to the origin of the fires, though the home of the McDonald's has been visited by many Antigonish County residents, no one has yet explained the cause of the fires. The Halifax Herald and the Evening Mail will pay $30 to readers who send in the best answers to what caused the fires. 
and the prize money will be divided as follows. First prize, $15. Second prize, $10. Third prize, $5. Another story on the fires appears today on this page. Send in your answers to Mysterious Fires Editor, The Herald and the Mail, end quote. Some readers claim the fires were the work of demons, summoned using witchcraft by someone attached to the property or holding a grudge against the McDonald's. Some attempted to give weak scientific arguments, but others were far more creative. On January 26, 1922, a rather philosophically-minded anonymous reader from Halifax wrote, quote, The fires are the result of spiritual manifestations for the guidance of those who are becoming too material. I do not mean the people who have had to leave their home in Caledonia Mills, but the general run of people who are becoming much too worldly. It would not surprise me if there are familiar manifestations in other parts of the country. We must smile more and frown less and try to be a little more like Christians. That is what is expected of us. End quote. <laughs> Barf. Yeah. <laughs> Barf, number one. <laughs> but, like, how creative is that? Like... Let's have a first prize of $15 for the... And they ran this contest for quite some time. And this newspaper made a lot of cash, you know, from people writing in and wanting to see their names in the paper. That's incredible. Yeah. Eventually, famous psychic investigator Dr. Franklin Walter Prince became involved in the investigation. Prince had left the clergy since joining the American Society for Psychical Research, ASPR, in 1908. He was involved in numerous high-profile investigations and would eventually become the president of the SPR from 1930 to 31. Prince remained highly skeptical of some forms of psi and other psychical phenomena, but felt telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition were very real. In 1927, Prince contributed to the book The Case for and Against Psychical Belief, which contains essays by both believers and skeptics of psychical phenomena. Prince was a close friend of the parapsychologist Joseph Banks or J.B. Rhine. Prince published and wrote the introduction for Rhine's famous book, Extrasensory Perception, in 1934. Dr. Prince, ever the debunker, wanted to get to the bottom of things. He brought Alex, Janet, and Mary Ellen back to the farmhouse in an effort to trigger events like those that had previously occurred. Harold Whidden, the newspaper man, was also present, and at one point, Whidden performed automatic writing at the McDonald's kitchen table. He said, channeling communications from the spirits in the farmhouse. In the session, the unseen entity used Whidden's hand to admit to the strange occurrences that had plagued the McDonald's for so long. Whitten wrote that he believed that these communications were from the spirit realm. One sentence in the writing was, quote, People must realize that those who have passed beyond are ever-present. God is merciful. God is good. He is just. Another read, Spirits do visit the earth after death, end quote. A later New York Times article highlighted Dr. Prince's findings. It reads in part, quote, His conclusion is that there was no ghost, but that the mysterious starting of fires in the house was due to human agency. He thinks that they were the work of Mary Ellen, the young adopted daughter of the McDonald's, but says she is not mentally culpable, being, quote, exceedingly young for her years in development of mind. Mary Ellen has had dream states and may have been in a, quote, altered state of consciousness when the acts were committed, Dr. Prince says. He indicates that this condition may have been the cause also of the braiding of the cow's tails and the shifting of livestock, 
It's possible, he says, that a discarnate intelligence impelled her. The girl is not held responsible for the slapping of Harold Whidden and Police Constable Carroll, a detective, which they say took place in the house. Dr. Prince's report is taken to suggest that they may have only thought they were slapped or may have slapped each other, end quote. The article goes on to indicate that Whidden's automatic writing, although interesting, didn't prove anything. In regards to the slapping incident, Prince said it was, quote, probably of supernatural character, which does not necessarily imply that the supernatural cause was spiritualistic. He continued that this may have been due to a, quote, psychopsychological cause, which is perfectly natural, though imperfectly normal, end quote. Prince's findings by no means put an end to the mystery that became known as the Mary Ellen Spook Farm. Mary Ellen was irritated by Prince's characterization of her. The family moved back into the farm. There were several more unexplained fires, but nothing to the degree of those in January of 1922. The case had become so famous that people who wanted to know more swarmed the property. It got so bad that Alex had to put an ad in the newspaper saying that sightseers were no longer welcome on his land. Mary Ellen was haunted by the story for years after, often in the way of public ridicule and bullying. In October 1922, she landed in what was then called the Nova Scotia Insane Asylum after being arrested while trying to burn down a barn. A physician at the hospital was quoted in a Birmingham, Alabama newspaper. The article read in part, quote, The superintendent of the insane asylum at Dartmouth said today that Mary Ellen was simply, quote, a common or garden variety of the moron family and not a particularly interesting moron at that, end quote. He also intimated that Mary Ellen, quote, had the mind of a four-year-old, end quote. My, how times have changed, and boy, am I glad. Yeah. What the? Can you imagine? I can imagine, actually. At the same time. Mm-hmm interesting that she was locked up for starting a fire mm -hmm. and that makes me think mm, maybe she's a bit of an arsonist like it's not by chance that it was fire right and then she's caught starting a fire or maybe she had personality problems and maybe the fires weren't set by her initially and she had personality problems that led her to want more attention could have been any number of things we don't know but that is lost to history. It is, isn't it? Mary Ellen struggled for a time after her release, being arrested and locked up a few more times. She eventually changed her name a couple of times, moved to Ontario, married and had four children with a man who worked at a Coca-Cola bottling plant. Her name was Helen McGuire when she died in Sudbury, Ontario, in June of 1987. Before her death at 64, she was a well-liked landlady who ran a local boarding house. From thelineup.com, quote, Over the years, several other explanations have been put forth as new detectives attempt to solve the mystery. Edward J. O'Brien, a lecturer who stopped off at the nearby St. Francis Xavier University, posited that the fires might have been caused by radio waves passing through Caledonia Mills between the radio towers at Wellfleet, Massachusetts and Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Though to modern science, that theory sounds perhaps even more preposterous than fire spooks. End quote. Who knows what really went on in Caledonia Mills, but it's a fun story to ponder, albeit fraught with pain for poor Mary Ellen. God rest her soul. Indeed. Indeed. What, a, what an interesting story. Wow. 
So what do you think? Was Mary Ellen the one starting the fire? Perhaps she was, or, or there's some scientific reason that they couldn't figure out at the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big ghosty. Well, even Dr. Prince, who was the sort of head ghost researcher at the time, <laughs> said no ghost. Pod a ghost. But he did indicate there was something going on. The doctor formerly known as Prince. Oh, dear. And that is it for Dark Poutine, episode 247, The Caledonia Mills Poltergeist. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty. We have one voicemail this week, and it looks like it's a 902 number, meaning Nova Scotia or PEI. Lots of my stomping grounds. Anyway, let's have a listen. Hey, guys. It's uh, Tom Cheeseman. I've been a longtime listener. Uh, Just finishing right now the um, episode... uh, about the guys in Alberta that killed the uh, RCMP officers. And this one's kind of difficult for me to listen to. I don't think I'm a relation to Dennis, but uh, hearing the last name Cheeseman said over and over and over again, it's kind of getting to me. Uh, Hope you guys have a great day. Uh, Tomorrow is Remembrance Day, a big day for me as I serve in the military at the moment. Hope you guys have a good weekend, and uh, go take a shit in your hat. Thanks. Bye. Now, Tom has emailed me to tell me that he had sent this voicemail. And he said, oh, man, I'm disappointed that I told you what I do because I wanted Matthew to make up a job for me. (laughs) But, you know, thank you for your service, number one, Thomas. We're not going to remove that. I, I think that that should be in there. However, you didn't say exactly what it is that you do in the military. Oh, you're going to put me on the spot, aren't you? So, Matthew, just let's ponder what it is that Mr. Cheeseman, not related to the bad Mr. Cheeseman who we've talked about, not related to the other Mr. Cheeseman who we talked about in a previous episode, what on earth do you think this guy does in the military for a living? He is a military entertainer. Well, really? Yeah. Like like the Canadian version of the USO kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, but he, has, he, uh, he does an Elvis impersonation. So he does an Elvis impersonation. Yeah, and he flies around the world being Elvis for, being the, for Elvis the troops. For the troops. <laughs> He's probably actually doing something really important and serious. <laughs> I, I, would, I would assume he probably <laughs> and is. And thank you for your service. Yes, we really appreciate Even that. if it is an Elvis impersonator, because the troops need to have some fun as well. Well, exactly. Like, you know, people are, people sometimes poo-poo the guys who are behind the lines or maybe Why driving the supply that? trucks and Why? all that kind of stuff. Well, they're not fighting. Yes, they are. Everyone they absolutely, is. they it, absolutely are doing something in service of the country. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So, no matter what it is you do, we thank you. Yeah, exactly. If you're the guy who drives the mail truck, you know. Well, I heard a blinker going when when he was talking. Mm-hmm. So I think he was um, g- going to the dry cleaner to get his Elvis suit. 
So which version of Elvis is he? Is he 1968, like, Elvis comeback special, no, all he sexy a, and no, dressed you know, in leather? He has a nice voice. So I think he's he, he was a young Elvis when he was good looking. So he's young Elvis. Yeah. So he's like Blue Hawaii Elvis. Yeah. Or, uh, or, or Love Me Tender Elvis. The early Elvis. Yeah, yeah. sure. He's not Elvis uh, at the end where he's bloated and drug-addled. No, drug and no. Have you seen the recent... Baz Luhrmann, Elvis movie. I have not. Well, guess who did? Me. And uh, You don't look impressed. No. I mean, I, I, I don't know why I do it, but I watch Baz Luhrmann's movies. I don't know why I put myself in that position where... Do you not like Baz Luhrmann? I really don't. I really don't. Didn't he do... Um, he did Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet was Which good. was great. That was actually, so I shouldn't poo-poo all his films, but. And like, Strictly Ballroom, was that him? I can't remember. I know that. Did he, you see Strictly Ballroom? No, I didn't see that you one. You have got to see Strictly Ballroom. Why would I like Strictly Ballroom? Because Matthew? it is, is it, fantastic. Is it about big underwear? No. It, it's <laughs> Strictly Ballroom? It, it's about. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann did it. Okay. Yeah, no. So it's, I'm killing myself it, over my ballroom. <laughs> It's uh, it's about love and ballroom dancing and and um, you know young lovers trying to be together. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, it's fantastic. It is so funny. Yeah, it's so good. You have to see it. Okay, I'll give it a shot. We'll watch it this weekend, and we'll we'll talk about Maybe it. Maybe I'm poo pooing Baz Luhrmann too much, but uh, but yeah. What was that other one that he did? <laughs> oh gosh, there's there's a he did Chicago. Which, like, I just wanted to, wow, you know, die after I saw Baz. I've seen it. I've never seen a photo of Baz Luhrmann. Mm -hmm. He's is he like super gay? I don't know. Okay, I haven't ever had a conversation where I got the chance to ask him. Okay, <laughs> so I don't know. Moulin Rouge. Did you like that? Oh, Great Gatsby. No, no, I re that was the one actually that sort of put me over the edge with okay. the Baz Luhrmann eight was okay. Great Gatsby because that story is one that I had to study in high school when I was a kid. I'm sure you probably did See, too. I want to do a, a, a an event for one of my brands and I want to do 80s roller disco and like get everything kind of Baz Luhrmann'd up. Oh, well, I was thinking of Boogie Nights, which is a, a much better... Yeah, but sort I want of, sort of glitter. Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> no, yeah. Well, there you go. So do that. Anyway, that's it for voicemails. Yeah, we only had one. But it was a good one. It was. Thank you again for your service. We really appreciate it, Mr. Cheeseman. Cheeseman. We're going to say it again. Cheeseman, but this time positively. Cheeseman. Cheeseman. Yeah. Let's say Cheeseman a bunch of times. In a nice way. Mr. Cheeseman is somebody who serves us so well in the military. Mr. Cheeseman is probably a good friend. Mr. Cheeseman had a really nice voice when he called us with his voicemail. Mr. Cheeseman does an awesome Elvis impersonation. Yes, Mr. Cheeseman does. Thank you, Mr. Cheeseman. <laughs> That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. 
If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We don't have any patrons this week or Donut Money donors, but that's okay. Uh, we covered them on the last episode and, you know, again, pulling the curtain back a little ways, we are recording. A little bit earlier. A little bit earlier. We're trying to get ahead. Because Mike's going away. Because I'm, well, I'm. Well, you'll have gone away by I the time they hear this. gone away by the time they hear this. But uh, also, um, we're recording a little earlier because you can listen ad free and early on Amazon uh, Amazon Music. So, yeah, there you go. My computer just died. Your computer died. Oh, I should have brought you the uh, oh, it's okay. The charger. But anyway. So thank you to everybody who are current patrons, future patrons, future donut money donors, and past. Love you, folks. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. All right, it's the end of the show. And you know what we say every time. It's uh, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Uh, Bye, everybody. Ciao, Bella. Chowder. All righty. Bye-bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.